Hello and welcome to DE Classified, a podcast showcasing the history of destroyer escorts. Each month, a member of the USS Slater's education crew will highlight a specific destroyer escort and share the stories of the sailors who served aboard these trim but deadly ships. My name is Tyler Warman, and today I am going to lead you on an adventure into the South Pacific to speak about the heroics of New Orleans-class cruiser USS San Francisco and our namesake, Frank O. Slater. Born in Fife, Alabama, December 19, 1920, Frank Slater was one of 12 children, born to Mr. James L. Slater and Mrs. Nora Slater. The son of sharecroppers, Frank grew up in rural DeKalb County, Alabama, enlisting in the United States Naval Reserves on February 20, 1942. Upon completion of basic training, Seaman 2nd Class Frank Slater was transferred to the receiving station Pearl Harbor for reassignment. Seaman 2nd Class Slater would serve aboard USS San Francisco from April 4, 1942 to November 12, 1942, the day that he was killed in action when a Japanese Mitsubishi G4M Betty Bomber crashed into his battle station. The heroic men of the 20mm battle station continued to fire until the moment of impact. Seaman's second class, Frank Slater's first journey on the New Orleans-class cruiser USS San Francisco, was when the vessel departed Oahu for San Francisco in the escort convoy 4093. At the end of May, she headed west, tasked with escorting the convoy PW2076, which consisted of transports carrying the 37th Army Division destined for Suva in the Fiji Islands and special troops destined for Australia. USS San Francisco ventured west with destroyers USS Laffey and USS Ballard to escort convoy 4120 to the Fiji Islands. From there, she sailed to rendezvous with the Solomon Island Expeditionary Force for Operation Watchtower. Operation Watchtower was the Allied offensive against Guadalcanal and Tulagi, which opened on the morning of August 7, 1942. Throughout the day of the landings, and the remainder of the month of August, San Francisco helped cover General Alexander Vandegrift's Marines in the Cactus Guadalcanal area. Task Force 18 was under the command of Rear Admiral Norman Scott, whose flagship was the San Francisco. On September 3, 1942, CA-38 ventured into Noumea, New Caledonia, to resupply with fuel and provisions. Five days later, she departed to cover reinforcements moving up Guadalcanal. After the initial landings on August 7th, the San Francisco remained in the Solomons as a part of the covering force of cruisers and destroyers. She then returned briefly to her former role as a carrier escort for the USS Wasp and USS Hornet. On September 11th, 1942, Task Force 18 joined along with the USS Hornet's Task Force 17, both refueling at sea the following day. At about 14.50 on September 15th, USS Wasp was torpedoed in the infamous Torpedo Junction, which was a scouting line of submarines deployed by Admiral Yamamoto to inhibit American convoys traveling between Numeo, Espirito Santo, and Guadalcanal. Ian W. Tull writes of the torpedoing, quote, The first struck home just forward of the island. The powerful blast lifted the entire ship and hurled her forward, flinging two F-4F Wildcats into the sea. End quote. Of the six torpedoes fired by Japanese I-19, five had struck American ships. Three struck the carrier Wasp. 
USS San Francisco, along with the USS Salt Lake City, prepared to take the carrier in tow. However, by 1520, the fires were uncontrollable, and whaleboats were dispatched from nearby destroyers to begin rescuing survivors. Cruisers formed on the San Francisco and maneuvered clear of the Wasp at high speed. Destroyers Duncan, Lansdowne, Lardner, Laffey, and Fahrenholt rescued survivors, while the light cruiser Jeannot made depth charge attacks to eastward of Wasp in the suspected submarine area. The crew of the Wasp were seen assembling aft, and it appeared that abandoned ship was commenced about 1513. The destroyers did an excellent job of rescuing survivors. Among those rescued were Rear Admiral Noyes and Captain Forrest Sherman. Destroyer USS Lansdowne was tasked with torpedoing the jagged steel hull. On September 23rd, San Francisco, along with Salt Lake City, Chester, Boise, and Helena, became Task Force 64, a surface screen attack force under the command of Admiral Norman Scott in the San Francisco. On the night of October 11th and 12th, Scott's warships of Task Force 64 ambushed a Japanese column of three cruisers and two destroyers as they headed into Iron Bottom Sound to bombard Henderson Field. The surprise attack destroyed a Japanese cruiser and a destroyer, while also heavily damaging another cruiser. Japanese Rear Admiral Aritomo Goto was critically wounded and later died. Norman Scott lost a destroyer, USS Duncan, and suffered damage to the cruisers Boise and Salt Lake City. In his book, Conquering Tide, naval historian Ian W. Toll writes, quote, This short, vicious fight, which would pass into history as the Battle of Cape Esperance, a tactical victory for the Americans, but not by the margins they initially believed. Later that same night, Admiral Tanaka would commence his landings of troops and supplies, including several artillery pieces near Cape Esperance, end quote. Two nights later, the Japanese surface force would pour down the heaviest barrage upon Henderson Field. On October 15th, San Francisco resumed operations in support of the Guadalcanal campaign. On October 28th, Admiral Scott transferred to the USS Atlanta, allowing Daniel J. Callahan, the commanding officer of the USS San Francisco when the United States entered the war, to return to his post and raise his flag as commander of Task Group 64.4 and Task Force 65. On the 31st of October, the newly designated Task Force 65 departed Esperito Santo. The ships again headed into the Solomons to cover troop landings and supply ships, heading for Guadalcanal. Bombardment missions in the Cocumbona and Coley Point areas followed. On the 6th of November, the transport group completed unloading and the force retired, arriving at Esperito Santo on the 8th of November. On the 10th, San Francisco, now flagship for Task Group 67.4, got underway again towards Guadalcanal. Just before noon, a Japanese twin-float reconnaissance plane began shadowing the formation. The forces arrived off Lunga Point, the site of Henderson Field, on November 12, 1942, and the transports commenced unloading. Historian Richard B. Frank writes, A shore battery barked at the transports and drew applies from the light cruiser Helena and the supporting destroyers, end quote. As the American men and materiel began to stream ashore, Lieutenant Commander Mitzi on Mount Austin sent a report back to Rabao. On Mitzi's alert, Yamamoto's Chief of Staff, Admiral Motomi Yugaki, prepared the 11th Air Fleet 
to strike with 16 torpedo-armed Mitsubishi G4M Betty bombers and 30 Mitsubishi A6M Zero fighters. However, amply warned by Coast Watcher Paul Mason and Radar, Admiral Richmond Kelly Turner got his ships underway and prepared to repel an air attack as 20 F4Fs and 8 P-39s scrambled into action. Historian Richard B. Frank writes, quote, At 14.05, the Japanese materialized over the green stripe of Florida's jungle and split into two groups, one swinging out to the northeast and the other banking to the southeast to bracket the transports. Turner saw these aerial jaws opened and countered in the style of a matador. First, he presented the broadsides of his ship like a red cape to the northeastern group. As Turner desired, the Japanese flight plunged prematurely into an attack before the second unit achieved position. With the first flight committed to an assault, Turner swerved his ships hard to port, only to offer their sterns as targets. All the torpedoes missed. This brilliant cacophony of an air-to-sea brawl saw gray ships spew illuminating tracers at the mortally wounded aircraft spewing into the ocean abyss, end quote. Plane already ignited by the destroyer Macaulay, bore into the San Francisco. Sailors manning a 20mm battery around the after control station were still firing when the plane smashed directly into their position. The fuselage warped the splinter plating and the wings splashed flaming gasoline over Battle 2 and destroyed the after-fire control radar. The burning Betty caromed off the San Francisco superstructure and splashed into the sea. The dead included every member of the four 20mm gun crews. 15 men were killed. 29 were wounded. One of those men killed was our namesake, Frank O. Slater. The entire attack lasted only 8 minutes, from 1412 to 1420. First-hand account from Lieutenant Junior Grade John Wallace states, As planes started to be shot down, Wallace watched as one dropped its torpedo at the San Francisco's starboard bow. The ship turned sharply to port, which then put the plane on her starboard quarter. Wallace reported, quote, About the time I expected that torpedo hit, it missed. Our anti-aircraft 20mm guns behind me, right outside my battle stations, really started to kick them out. I looked out toward the starboard quarter, and that's when I saw a Mitsubishi Betty bomber coming right at me with its starboard engine smoking. I had just time to duck inside the outer door when a tremendous explosion knocked me all the way up to the forward side of the secondary con, and I lost consciousness. End quote. The plane hit the starboard edge of the anti-aircraft platform, skidded across it, and then fell off the port side and into the sea. All 11 men on the platform were killed instantly. 29 were wounded, including Wallace, who was awarded a Navy Cross for his efforts in rescuing wounded men from his battle station despite his own injuries. The men on the anti-aircraft platform all received posthumous Navy Crosses for maintaining fire on the plane until it crashed. These men were William F. Cates, George R. Eisel, George I. Falgett, Andrew J. Gandy, Eugene F. George, Albert T. Harris, Harry J. Lowe, Jackson K. Loy, William T. Powell, and of course, Frank O. Slater, along with John L. Williamson. Each of these men had a destroyer escort named in his honor. Regarding the plane crash, the San Francisco's after-action report states, 
USS San Francisco was covering landing operations on Guadalcanal on 12th November 1942, when attacked by Japanese torpedo planes. The covering force, including the San Francisco, got underway to execute evasive maneuvers. During the subsequent engagement at 1415, a Japanese torpedo plane started an approach off the starboard quarter. This plane was taken under fire by the Macaulay and set afire. It jettisoned its torpedo prior to the release point and then crashed against San Francisco's after control station and fell into the water on the port side. The resulting fire destroyed the after control station, damaged Battle 2, and caused the loss of about 35 officers and men who were manning these stations. The loss of personnel, in addition to the damage to the 8-inch after director, would prove costly in the action which followed. Landing operations were halted on the evening of the 12th and all ships withdrew from the area. Combatant units were reassembled and returned to the area during the evening. At about midnight, San Francisco, in company with one heavy cruiser, three light cruisers, and eight destroyers, entered Lengo Channel. The force speed was 18 knots, the sky was overcast, the moon had set, and the night was dark. Visibility was fair to good, and the wind was about 10 knots coming from the southeast. A slight sea was running. San Francisco's planes had been sent to Tulagi. All inflammables removed from exposed stations, and the vessel was ready in all respects for night action. The San Francisco's crew began repairing the damage caused by the crash immediately after the air attack. But those efforts were abandoned that night when the ship and its fellow cruisers and destroyers steamed into the Friday the 13th cruiser night action off of Guadalcanal. At 1.25 in the morning on the 13th, the enemy force was discovered about 27,000 yards to the northwest. Rear Admiral Callahan's task group maneuvered to intercept. At 1.48, San Francisco opened fire on an enemy cruiser 3,700 yards off her starboard beam. At 1.51, she trained her guns on a small cruiser or large destroyer 3,300 yards off her starboard bow. San Francisco opened fire under the belief that the vessel was an enemy ship. However, this turned out to be the friendly light cruiser USS Atlanta, which after the discovery, the fire ceased. Unfortunately, not before the Atlanta was badly damaged. Lieutenant C. Raymond Calhoun from the escorting destroyer Sterrett was reminded of a, quote, no-holds-bar-room brawl, in which someone had turned off the lights and everyone started swinging in every direction." End quote. At 0200, San Francisco trained her guns on a second Japanese battleship, the Hiei. At the same time, she became the target of a cruiser off her starboard bow, and of a destroyer which had crossed her bow and was passing down her port side. The enemy battleship joined the cruiser and the destroyer in firing on San Francisco, whose port 5-inch battery engaged the destroyer, but was put out of action except for one mount. The battleship Hiei put the starboard 5-inch battery out of commission. Nevertheless, San Francisco swung left while her main battery continued to fire on the battleship, which, with the cruiser and the destroyer, continued to pound San Francisco. A direct hit on the navigation bridge killed or badly wounded all officers. Steering and engine control were lost and shifted to Battle 2. 
Battle 2 was out of commission by a direct hit from the port side. Control was again lost. Control was once again established in the conning tower, which soon received a hit from the starboard side. Steering and engine control were temporarily lost, then regained. However, all communications were dead. Soon thereafter, the enemy ceased firing. San Francisco followed suit and withdrew eastward along the north coast of Guadalcanal. 77 sailors were killed, including Rear Admiral Daniel J. Callahan and Captain Cassin Young and all other officers on the bridge, leaving only Lieutenant Commander Bruce McCandless, who took the con for the rest of the battle. For his conduct, McCandless was awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. 105 had been wounded. Of seven missing, three were subsequently rescued. The San Francisco had taken 45 hits. Structural damage was extensive, however, not serious. No hits had been received below the waterline, and impressively, 22 fires had been started and extinguished. At about 0400, San Francisco, all her compasses out of commission, joined Helena and followed her through Sealark Channel. At about 1000, the USS Juno's medical personnel transferred to San Francisco to assist in treating the numerous wounded. An hour later, Juneau took a torpedo on the port side, in the vicinity of the bridge. Quote, The entire ship seemed to explode in one mighty column of brown and white smoke and flame, which rose easily a thousand feet in the air. The Juneau literally disintegrated, end quote. San Francisco was hit by several fragments from Juneau. One man was hit. Both his legs were broken. Nothing was seen in the water after the smoke lifted. On the afternoon of November 14th, San Francisco returned to Espirito Santo for her participation in the action of the morning of the 13th and for that of the night of 11th and 12th October, she received the Presidential Unit Citation. On November 18th, the cruiser sailed for Noumea, and on the 23rd, she got underway towards the United States. The battered cruiser reached San Francisco on December 11th. Three days later, repairs were begun at Mare Island. The 12th of November's plane crashes often overlooked due to the harrowing combat of the following night, Friday the 13th. However, the tremendous heroics of Frank Slater and every other sailor in those 20mm gun tubs were carried on in the form of a destroyer escort. Little was it known at the time, but one of these trim but deadly ships would be the last to float out of 563, the USS Slater. This excerpt comes from a DeKalb County, Alabama newspaper. Because somewhere in the Solomons, a DeKalb County boy kept pouring bullets into a Japanese plane until it crashed, flaming into his station. His mother will be the sponsor at the christening of a destroyer escort vessel to be named for that boy. End quote. When Mrs. Slater learned that some ships have been christened with water, she expressed the hope that the christening committee allow her to use water from the well, Frank Doug, to christen the USS Slater, DE-766. Below the family well, Frank wrote the date of completion in the wet concrete, November 13, 1939, exactly three years before he would be buried at sea in the Pacific Ocean.
Frank Slater's legacy was forever immortalized in the form of USS Slater, and his brother, Elam Slater, would get the honor to serve aboard the family namesake and even get to see it converted into the Destroyer Escort Historic Museum. To conclude, I would like to read a letter written from Medal of Honor recipient Commander Bruce McCandless to Mrs. Nora Slater. In the letter, McCandless wrote, quote, I know how poor must seem any words of ours trying to console the loss of your son, but he and his comrades who died so that others may live and his ship might be saved have your undying admiration and respect. If ever a person died like a man, your son Frank did. Thank you for listening to DE Classified. This podcast is brought to you by the Destroyer Escort Historical Museum aboard USS Slater. You can find a transcript of this episode, accompanying photos, and a bibliography at ussslater.org slash declassified. I'm Tyler Warman, and I hope you join us next month to DE Classify, the story of the USS Vance.